Hello, thank you for joining me on Humanities Radio. I'm Janet Cunningham with the University of Utah College of Humanities, and this season I'll be in discussion with professors from across our college about their latest book publications. I'm sitting with Jake Nelson, Assistant Professor of Communication, to discuss his book, Imagined Audiences, How Journalists Perceive and Pursue the Public. It examines the role that audiences have traditionally played in journalism, how that role has changed, and what those changes mean for both the profession and the public. Thank you for joining me, Professor Nelson. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to talk about this book. One of the things I really connected to about this book is that it related a lot to my field, which is marketing. Um, I know we're going to talk about journalism, but it was really interesting on how it aligned with what I do in the marketing world. So just as an introduction, can you provide just an overview of your book and explain what motivated you to write on the topic? Yeah. Uh, Well, first of all, I think that that's such an interesting observation and it makes so much sense because so much of what journalists are increasingly doing is what people in marketing have been doing for their whole careers. And a lot of journalists bristle at that, but then some of them are really excited about that. So yeah, I'm excited to talk more about that. Um, So... The book is basically about how journalists think about their audiences and how their assumptions about their audiences influence what they do to get people to actually consume the news, to trust the news, and to ideally support the news, you know, by subscribing to it or uh, becoming members of news organizations or, you know, doing whatever they can to make news organizations stay financially afloat. And what got me interested in this project was uh, actually my work as a journalist, which I began right when I graduated from my undergrad. So in 2010, I was working as a journalist covering a small suburb outside of Chicago. And it was at a time when people really had no clue how to make local news sustainable. They still don't know, Mm -hmm, but it was very clear then that that was a real problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was when I heard the word audience engagement for the first time. Okay. And it became very clear that part of my priorities wouldn't just be reporting the news or doing all the things that I'd sort of been trained to do as a journalism student, but also finding ways to build stronger ties with the people that I hope to reach. Right. So, okay, so the central question in the book is how journalists who are very focused on understanding and reaching their audiences perceive those people in the first place. So what is their perception and how was it created? Yeah. So uh, there are some things that I would say most journalists have in common when it comes to their assumptions about the audience. Uh, I would say that the biggest one is that uh, that journalists have a lot of control over how audiences feel about the news. So, you know, the example that I tend to go to is... Um, if journalists cover the types of stories that they think their audiences are interested in, then those audiences will tune in to the news. Okay. Uh, and intuitively, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you give people what they want, they'll come back for more. Uh, where I sort of come at it from, though, is from this sort of slightly different perspective, which is that uh, in a very saturated media environment that we live in, where there are so many options everywhere people might not, not not even know that uh-huh. there's perfect news available for you. Mm-hmm. You know, they may never find what it is that you're putting out there. And so um, journalists might actually have a lot less agency than 
they care to think, um, unfortunately for them. Right. <laughs> so why, well, how, so what is the difference between how journalists perceive their audiences versus how they actually, how the audiences actually behave? Yeah. So I think that uh, I would say, going off of, of what we're just talking about, the, the big difference is that um, journalists see their relationship with their audience as being very straightforward. You know, okay. journalists, uh, it, their thinking is like, if we just figure out how to report this story in a way that it's going to be really interesting to the audience, then the audience will be there for right. it. Um, you know, like if we realize that our audience is really interested in this topic and we invest our resources into covering that topic, we'll get the audience. Or, you know, if the audience is interested in this topic, but our coverage of this topic has been not exciting to them. And so we you know, do more video or like turn it into a podcast or mm -hmm. focus on these different people within the story instead mm -hmm. of these other people, then we'll get the audience that way. And it's not that simple. And in fact, a lot of what drives audiences to our way from news are things that have nothing to do with journalism. So for example, uh, I'm sure you've had the experience of being on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, and maybe you click a link to a news story and it starts loading. And four seconds later, you're still waiting for it to load. <laughs> and you're like, forget it. Never you know, mind. I, never mind. I, I don't care that much about it. And you close it, you know? your decision to close the story has nothing to do with the quality of the news story. Right. It's just the interface of the website mm -hmm. was so awful <laughs> right? that you were just like, I, I don't have the patience for yeah. this. And journalists don't tend to think about that mm -hmm. because they have no control over that right. and because they would rather not acknowledge that so much of what drives audiences mm. to or away from their content is stuff that is completely outside of their control. Right. And and it's stuff that has nothing to do with right. the content itself. It's just about right. how quickly did it load. Yep. So why is this crucial? Why is understanding your audiences crucial for journalists and newsrooms? So I think it's crucial because I think uh, for starters, you know, if journalists – right now I think journalists are setting themselves up for disappointment mm -hmm. by sort of just – thinking that they that they have the primary means by which they can improve their relationship with their audiences. Okay. Um, and it's unreasonable for them to have such high expectations for mm -hmm. themselves. Um, you know, I think that going back to the example that I was just sharing, um, the way to get you to stay on that news story is for that news story to load quicker, right. you know? Um, and that means that news organizations should be investing not just in making sure that they have journalists that are putting out quality journalism, but also that they, you know, have a user experience that mm -hmm. is seamless, mm -hmm. um, which is not something that a lot of newsrooms have invested a lot of resources, right. you know, but it's the reason why people, why news organizations like the New York Times are so popular um, mm -hmm. and the Washington Post are so popular because they already have a lot of means at their disposal to invest in both journalism and in, right. you know, a really great app mm -hmm. and a website that loads really quickly. And what we don't tend to realize is that that just perpetuates the gap between sort of like the winners, like the New York Times, right. the Washington Post, and right. like everyone else. Mm -hmm. And um, we think that it's just about quality 
um, mm-hmm. but it's really not. It's about this big resource gap as well. And so I think that having this sort of more comprehensive discussion about what drives audiences to to certain news organizations over others um, will not only sort of help journalists have more realistic expectations of themselves, but might also lead to a more productive conversation of how do we solve journalism's problems. So is this, you kind of talk about, so just I'm kind of jumping around here. You you kind of had talked about how the uh, newsrooms such as the New York Times are gaining subscribers while those these kind of local newsrooms are losing subscribers. And so other than like the digital interface, can you kind of explore that a little bit more? Why kind of these local newspapers, news outlets aren't being as successful? Yeah. So I think there's a couple of things at play. The first is that uh, local news organizations are by and large so cash-strapped at this point Uh that uh, they are laying off their employees, they are cutting back on the beats that they cover, Mm -hmm. and communities notice that, Mm -hmm. and they open up their local newspaper and they notice how thin it is compared to what it once was. They go to the website and they see that so much of what's there is, um, you know, like repurposed from mm-hmm. like Associated Press or, yep. you know, other places that they can get stuff for from for free. Mm-hmm. And they think like, why should I, I'm not getting my money's worth, you right. know, why should I pay for this? Um, plus <laughs> the user interface is garbage, you know, so <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it doesn't look good. It doesn't feel good. And mm-hmm. you're not getting quality information. So I think that that's a big part of it. Um I also think that, uh, unfortunately, many news organizations, including local news organizations, at the advent of the internet, decided we would put everything online for free. Okay, yeah. And we will do that because we'll make the money back in digital advertising revenue. And that never worked out. And it was a really bad decision because it set people up to assume that news should be free. Right. And so, you know, I talk to my undergrads, my journalism classes all the time, many of whom are taking journalism classes mm-hmm. because they want to go into journalism. Uh-huh. And I say, oh, do you pay for any news organization? Do you subscribe? No. No. <laughs> Why not? Uh, because if I can't, if I hit a paywall here, I'll just find it elsewhere. You know, mm-hmm. it's just this idea of, well, it's out there somewhere, so I can just find it. It's mm-hmm. not, to their mind, um, an individual unique good that only one news organization can provide. And so I think that that's a big part of it. I think that it's a vicious cycle at this point because local news organizations are so, uh, are in such dire straits that they Mm -hmm. are really, it's like they can't prove their value, but because they can't prove their value, they're still bleeding subscribers. Right. And so when you talk about local, are you talking about local, even like you would assume, like consider the Salt Lake Tribune local, even though it's the largest newspaper in the state or would you say more of like the newspaper in Ogden or the newspaper in Park City? I would include all of that. Okay. I will say that the Salt Lake Tribune is exceptional because they have this nonprofit Mm -hmm. setup, which uh, my understanding is they made that transition to a nonprofit business model in part to avoid the fate that so many other local news organizations have found themselves in, which is where they get bought out Mm -hmm. by hedge funds, that the people behind them have no real interest in journalism. They're just basically trying to bleed these things dry. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really cynical and it's really awful from the perspective of anyone who cares about journalism. Um, And 
I'm so grateful to live here (laughs) (laughs) because the Salt Lake Tribune, I think, is actually like a really great local Mm -hmm. news outlet. Um, You know, I moved here from Phoenix. I was working at Arizona State, which is home to a really great journalism school. And what's somewhat ironic is that despite the fact that, you know, there's this terrific journalism school in Phoenix, Mm -hmm. um, the Arizona Republic, which is the local newspaper, it's this Gannett-owned local newspaper, and the journalists who work there are great. They do mm-hmm. great work, but there aren't enough of them. And right. the paper is really diminished. And, you know, I really constantly over the four years I was living there found myself thinking, man, like, I do not know anything about the city in which I live. Oh, wow. Um, and I wish I knew more. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, I feel like I, I feel better. You know, I feel yeah. like I have a place the Salt Lake Tribune, and then there's some other local news right. providers out there that I feel are actually doing a pretty good job. Yeah, I agree. Um, so what makes up audience patterns when it comes to news consumption? Do you mean like what are some like examples of yeah, or like examples. what are the factors that shape them? I would say what are some of the, some, some examples of, of their when it comes to news consumption? Um, so I think that... Uh, the the ones that I am constantly sort of showing my students to sort of demonstrate to them um, how much people's audience patterns are outside of journalist control mm-hmm. are um, when people are listening to the news or listening to media, when people are watching news or watching media, um, and when people are on their computers. Um, so uh, people tend to be listening to the news or listening to media between the hours of like, 7 a.m. and 9 a.m. Okay. Weekday mornings, mm-hmm. which I assume that you probably know the reason why, which is... Drive time. <laughs> drive time, exactly. Yeah, they're driving to or from work. And what's interesting is that um, during COVID, that right that audio time really went down. Mm-hmm. And in its place, you saw people were spending a lot more time watching TV. Oh, yeah. Okay. And the reason why was because people were locked in their houses. Mm-hmm. So... Um, the you know the short answer to your question is that people's patterns of media consumption are really shaped by the structures that comprise their everyday right. lives. You know, like where do they work? How long is their commute? Um, you know, like are they working from home where they can watch TV, mm-hmm. or are they working in offices where they can, so they're on their computers? Uh, do they have internet access? Mm-hmm. You know, like is broadband readily available? Those kinds of things, um, and. Uh, the one other thing that I would add to that is in an environment that is so saturated with media choices, the big pattern that we see time and time again is that people tend to congregate around things that are already really popular. Mm-hmm. So even though uh, there are so many, for example, political news outlets mm-hmm. that are available, uh contrary to this idea that we all just try to seclude ourselves in our echo chambers, uh, people still congregate on CNN, mm-hmm. on MSNBC, on Fox News. And, you know, we could have a conversation about, like, <laughs> whether those are, like, generalist or whether they're extremist or whatever. Right. But but they're very popular. Mm-hmm. And the reason why is because people tend to associate popularity with quality. And also because, going back to what we were talking about with the New York Times and Washington Post, these name brands have such rich reserves. Mm-hmm. They can use the money that they have to 
you're in marketing, so you'll know game SEO, you know, mm-hmm. like make themselves appear at the very top of a Google Absolutely. search. Uh, they can do A-B headline testing, you mm-hmm. know. Um, they can invest serious money in putting, in pushing their stuff out at audiences oh, in ways definitely. that in others can. Uh-huh. So we talk about how, you know, we're so saturated with news outlets now um, but that hasn't always been the case because of like, you know, with internet access, social media. So how has a journalist's role evolved over time when it comes to um, their audience or how in relation to how the how they engage with the public? Yeah, yeah. So I think that that's like really the crux of why journalists even feel compelled to talk to their audiences or interact with their audiences in mm-hmm. the first place is because uh, for a long time, journalists kind of took for granted that whatever they put out would reach the audience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this goes back to like the advent of TV when there were just like three channels to choose from. And every night people just chose between these three news broadcasts and that was it. The expectation was that you were choosing between three news broadcasts, but you were still watching the news, you know, and journalists can't take that for granted anymore. Mm -mm. And they haven't been able to for a while. Mm -mm. And so as they become more aware of that and, the desperation from that becomes more increased. Uh, journalists feel like, okay, well then we have to basically market ourselves. Uh-huh. You know, we have to right. like present ourselves to the audience and persuade them mm-hmm. to trust us and persuade them to get their mm-hmm. news from us. And so that's where this idea of engagement comes mm-hmm. in. And uh, a lot of journalists, I don't know if this is still the case, but when I first started doing this research, really bristled at the idea that they had to engage with their audiences. Right. They were like, what I do is like, important you know mm-hmm. and people should just understand mm-hmm. that and uh i think journalists most of them understand that you can't you can't make that case anymore mm-hmm. you know you can't really get away with that right and it's it's more of i think it's you you tell me if this right the the um pressure to engage with the audience is put on the individual journalists not necessarily like the, like the newsroom as a whole not like their main twitter feed it's more of the journalists individually like you need to go out and get people to read our news content yeah yeah i think that's absolutely right and uh i think what's really interesting about that i mean i think it's really unfair <laughs> no, for sure <laughs> i think it's really unfair and i think it's unfair for two reasons the first is that uh you know the journalist <laughs> As I'm sure you know, journalists are not making very much money right now. And they have a lot that's asked on of them. You know, Mm -hmm. like they have a ton of work to do just in reporting the news at a time when people, many people don't like journalists, Mm -hmm. you know? So it's like a tough time to just be in the world as a journalist. Uh On top of that, news organizations are saying it's on you to promote your work and Mm -hmm. our brand, which is a huge added Mm -hmm. responsibility. then what I think really compounds things and 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 is really makes this so unfair is that um, journalists, first of all, experience a ton of antagonism in their mm-hmm. engagement. You know, especially mm-hmm. if they're doing it on social media, they're trying to interact with the public and people are being really nasty. And mm-hmm. you know, what I found in other research that I've done is that women journalists and journalists of color they get the worst treatment mm-hmm. from members of the public. Um, and news organizations who are asking them to put themselves out in front of the public are not really giving them much in the way of resources right. or support mm-hmm. uh, to help them navigate mm-hmm. those challenges. 
And in fact, they're actually often getting mad at their journalists when those journalists say or do things on social media that um, lead members of the public to accuse the brand right. of being biased. You know, hey, your journalist said something that makes me think that they might be liberal. And therefore, I can't trust your news organization mm -hmm. anymore unless you fire this person or punish right. them in some way. <laughs> and it's just like a really tough yeah. spot to put journalists in. Absolutely. So what are some of the key takeaways or, I guess, recommendations you have or that you state in the book that journalists and news organizations can do to navigate this kind of evolving space they're in? Yeah, well, <laughs> I think the big one, the big one really is that like, I kind of, I, I would love for journalists to like cut themselves some slack, mm -hmm. you know, like I feel like it's been, you know, I graduated from journalism school in 2010 and since then, you know, like I, when I first graduated, I internalized this idea that it's all on the journalist to solve these problems. You know, like <laughs> we need to fix things. We need, it, it's all on us. And I think that that's just really unrealistic and unfair. Mm -hmm. And I think that journalists would do well to like acknowledge that like there are things that they can do to improve their relationships with the public, but journalists by themselves, you know, just by virtue of doing really good work, that is not going to solve journalism's problems. Right. Um, I think that that high quality work, you know, along with like an important and overdue conversation about like what that work should look like, you know, like how important should objectivity be as, mm -hmm. a, as a norm in journalism at a point where uh, there's so much polarization in this country and where it seems many people actually respond better to people being like themselves rather than, okay. you know, and like being like authentic uh -huh. and genuine as compared to sort of like the buttoned up, like I am the professional, you know, uh, right. um, like maybe it's time to sort of revisit that. Mm -hmm. um, but in addition to all that, I think that uh, there needs to be a serious investment in how news sites actually present the news, mm -hmm. you know, like what these sites do to make the experience of being on a news organization's webpage right. better, you mm -hmm. know? That requires money. Mm -hmm. And that means that we need to have another conversation about <laughs> funding journalism. Right. Uh, so um, there's a book that I point to at the end of my book uh, that's written by Victor Picard. Um, and it's all about making the case for publicly supported journalism, okay. you know, for, for journalism that is basically taxpayer subsidized. Right. And it's one of those things that it's like, 20 years ago, it sounded like an insane idea. 10 years ago, it sounded like still a really crazy idea. I feel like increasingly it's like, maybe we could do that. You know, <laughs> like we're just, it's like, we're, we're just desperate enough to try anything, you yeah, know, like right. let's advocate for that. Yeah. And I do feel like if we're, if we want to meaningfully improve journalism, mm -hmm. then journalism organizations need to have the revenue that they need. And Absolutely. that means that we need to figure out a funding model that mm -hmm. actually works. Mm -hmm. And people need to just understand the value of local journalism yeah. and how important it is. Exactly. Yeah. So for my final question, a little off topic, the final question that I have asking everyone this season, um, what does this world know now because of your research that they didn't know before? Uh, that's a fun question. <laughs> um, I guess my hope is that the world, and by world I mean, you know, the 12 academics that read this and the half dozen journalists that hopefully read it uh, know that um, journalists alone cannot solve journalism's problems. Right. And that 
the relationship between journalists and the public is not just based on one's interactions with the others, mm -hmm. that there are these external factors that play a really pivotal role in shaping that relationship as well. Absolutely. That was Jake Nelson, Assistant Professor of Communication. For more information about the University of Utah College of Humanities, please visit humanities.utah.edu and don't forget to subscribe to Humanities Radio.